Psalm 22 from verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is a governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. For he hath done this. Last week we looked at Psalm 22 and verses 22 to 26. Seeing that very much as the, the results of the suffering of Christ in verses 1 to 21. There were results, there are results that follow from the sufferings of Christ. These results are not accidental, they are things that were planned. Christ, when he was on the cross, was in no doubt whatsoever that there would be great things achieved by his suffering. Those who believe in what's called Armenian doctrine, at least in this department of theology, they would say that when Christ was suffering on the cross, all he did was he made the salvation of people possible. That he didn't actually achieve the salvation of even one person, but that he made salvation possible for everyone, but achieved it for no one. Now Calvinism against that says no, but when Christ was on the cross, he was there for his people. He had his people in mind when he suffered and died and went through hell for them. And each one of those people whose names were engraven on his palms will each one be saved. They will come every single one of them. Now, who will come? Well, that's what we will look at tonight in verses 27 to 31. First of all, in verse 27 and 28, you find that they will come from worldwide. Then secondly, in verse 29, they'll come both high and low. And then in verse 30 and 31, they shall come for all time and the generations to come. So first of all, spatially, worldwide. Then they shall come of all classes, high and low. And then they shall come for all time and generations to come. Let's look at these three things for a short while tonight. First of all, they will come worldwide. In verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. All the kindreds or all the families of the nations shall worship before thee. They're going to come not just from one part of the globe, but they're going to come from all ends of the earth. When Christ was on the cross suffering, he didn't just have the Jews in mind. He had the Gentiles in mind as well. He had all the nations in mind. People would come because of his suffering from all ends of the earth, east and west and north and south, 
black and white and red and yellow, all ends of the earth. It's good to remember that at any point when we feel that this part of the world is a center of the Christian church. It's not. The cross is a center and every other part of the world will focus onto that cross. All families of the nations worldwide. And what shall they do? Well, they'll do three things. First of all, they will remember. Isn't that a strange word? All ends of the world shall remember. Remember what? Well, do you imagine that the cross is forgettable? Do you imagine for a moment that what Christ suffered is forgettable? You see, those who are touched by the Lord, by His Spirit and by His power, you know what they're brought to remember? They're brought to remember what Jesus did on the cross. They're brought to remember the reward that Jesus received for his suffering, the resurrection. They're brought to remember all so many things that Christ did that the Spirit will not allow us to forget. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will bring to our minds the things of Christ so that we will not forget. What are we doing here tonight? If we haven't remembered, but we haven't, that's what Christians are, people who remember. The cross is unforgettable. And you know this, friend, the world could never make us remember. Nor could our own hearts make us remember. It is the work of God's Spirit to bring us to see the importance of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It is God's Holy Spirit who alone can bring us to see what God did to Jesus, what God did for Jesus, and why it happened that he was there suffering to save us from our sins. God makes us remember. So that's the first thing they will do. From all ends of the world, they shall remember. Secondly, they will turn. Now that's the mark of remembering, isn't it? No point someone saying, I remember, but it doesn't affect their direction of life. If you remember, you will turn. You will turn. And turn where? Just to any God? To any religion? <coughs> No, you will turn to the Lord. Remember that that word Lord means the covenant God. The one who has promised to save, the one who sent the Savior, and the one who will keep all his promises made to Christ. This is the God that we will turn to, the Lord. Not just any religion, not at all. You know all this ecumenical movement just now, where even high church officials seem to say, well, so long as people have some faith, then they're fulfilling this promise. People say they'll come from all ends of the earth, and they'll come to God, 
whether they put this or pain, that's nonsense. It's the Lord we're talking about, not just a God. And there's only one Lord, the one who covenanted Jesus to us. And you know, my friends, we needed to be tired. Your direction of life and mine was away from the Lord. We were drifting with the tide, drifting with the world, going astray. But then the Lord turned us back to himself. How? What turned you back? It was remembering. Remembering things probably that you were taught at your mother's knee. When you first heard about Christ, the cross, the blood, the offer of salvation, the resurrection, all these things you heard, but you left behind. But then a day came when you remembered these things. And they were brought forcibly to your mind with such force that you turned and you faced the Lord. But that's only the second thing. Then the third thing was this, that they shall worship before thee. They shall be prostrate before thee, in submission before thee, in love, not grudge. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't grudge God your worship. You offer it in love. It becomes the most natural thing for someone who has remembered and turned to the Lord then to worship him. Sad thing is that we go through phases when we forget. And when we forget, it's as if our face turns for seasons away from looking on the Lord. And when we do that, it's as if the spirit of worship seeps away from our life. It's not true. Are you in the spirit of worship tonight? Are we, we who have come from the ends of the world, who have remembered, are we in a spirit of worship? Why? Why will they come from all ends of the earth? Why will they remember, turn and worship the Lord? Because the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. That means, you see, that there are nations, they have their own kings. But it's not these kings who will bring the people to Jesus Christ. It's God who is reigning and he's gathering. He's the one who is king of all kings. He is the one who is reigning over the whole world. And he's working out everything for good. Gathering in to his kingdom all those for whom Jesus died. Every single one of them. He is the governor of the nations. So let's not imagine, for example, Sandra's in Thailand. We pray that her witness name will be blessed. We want to see people convert. You remember when there was one earth man here, when Gus was here, talking about the work in the Philippines. How the church was growing there at such a mighty rate. 
and yet in time where the words will go on for so long and so little fruit. And we're apt to say, well, that's another nation. Their culture doesn't match Christianity. So it cannot, it cannot be touched for the Lord. Listen, the kingdom is the Lord's. He is the governor of Thailand. He is the governor of Japan. He is the governor of Asia. He and he alone. And that's why, you see, we can be confident. They will come from all the ends of the earth. It's not Satan who's reigning. It's God who reigns. Satan is God's true. He can never be more. So they'll come worldwide. Secondly, they'll come from high and low. In verse 29, All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. The fat ones of the earth literally. These are the people who are prosperous. They're the people, you see, they've, they've been fed on the fineness of wheat. And they've really had a good life. They don't need anyone. They're rich. They're getting on fine without the gospel. They're just doing so well. And you know people like that. One of my own friends is a minister in a town further down. Further down south. And this town is very much a place where, say, people go to retire. But the kind of houses in this place are usually well-to-do houses for well-to-do people. And you would say, well, these are people who don't need the Lord. They're the fat ones of the earth. You know, the kind that seems so arrogant, the kind that seems so haughty, that sneer at the gospel. And you and I sometimes imagine, well, these ones certainly won't come. The fat ones of the earth will not be in the kingdom. But they will. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and wash. It will include people who at one time were so arrogant, so atheistic, so proud and so haughty. God will humble them so that they will want to come and eat at the gospel feast and be satisfied. What a God! What a God! What a God! The ones of the earth shall come and worship in love. I heard very recently over in Sky a man who was an atheist really and who did sneer at the gospel and he, he would say I have no need of any such thing and he started coming to church and a number of Sabbaths ago the Lord touched his heart and that man came streaming came out of the church with tears streaming down his face having turned to the Lord that's what God's able to do Let's take heart from these promises. So the fat ones of the earth. But also those that go down to the dust shall bow before him. Who goes down to the dust? Well I think that's a figure there for those who are going to die. 
those who are going to die in the lowly day. It's as if that's all that really was important about their lives, that they died. Nothing else. They weren't fat, they weren't prosperous, they weren't people who were famous or anything like that. No. They were people, all you could say about them was that they were going to die. And my friend, that's true of us all. We're going to die. Well, Christ came to save people who were going to die. That's the only future they had. They were going to the dust. Their bodies were going to the grave and their souls were going to hell. That was the future they had. But what has the Lord done? These very people will be drawn to Jesus and they'll bow before him. They'll bow before him. And also we're told none can keep alive his own soul. It's as if those who are coming are people who know that they cannot keep their souls alive. As someone put it, they're coming to gain a life which is not theirs to command. It's not, it's not what it means to become a Christian. It's coming to gain a life which was not ours to command. We couldn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to live forever. We don't have a choice. We die. We can choose the time or the place apparently. But we can't choose whether to live or die ultimately. We die. None of us can keep ourselves alive. But Christ, when he draws the people to him, it's as if these people have a testimony and they will say, My, we couldn't keep our souls alive. But we've come to the one who gives us eternal life. Oh, everyone will die. And as life leaves them, so the judgment will find them. Are you prepared for that? As life leaves you, so judgment will find you. But in Christ, you know that you will have everlasting life. So high and low, those who are prosperous and haughty, and those whom we could say nothing but that they were going to die. And every one of us, this is true of us, that we couldn't keep ourselves alive. But then thirdly, in all the time to come, people will come to Christ. Generations. It says in verse 13, 31, A seed shall serve them. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness to a people that shall be born. In the time to come, it says, there's going to be a seed. A seed. Remember Genesis 3, 15. When man fell and God came in covenant love, he said there will be the seed of the serpent, but there will also be the seed of the woman, 
there will be Christians and they will be called a seed because they are all related one to another because they are related to Jesus Christ the seed of the woman and that's true those of us who are Christians in this room tonight we are a seed we are all related we're individuals yes but we are united together in Christ we are Eve's children in Christ Jesus a seed and what shall the seed do? the seed shall serve the seed shall serve and that's what we want servants it's not easy to make people servants willing you can pay people to be servants and the more you pay them perhaps the better the work will be but this kind of service will be willing service freely offered and that's what the seed will do in all the generations to come doesn't matter where they were born north, south, east or west doesn't matter what station of life they held before this seed whoever they are their mark will be that they will serve they will serve the very opposite of what Eve did we will do we will serve the Lord willingly wholeheartedly not just with our lips saying my will be done but in our lives going out to do it seed they're also called in the generations a generation now this verse is difficult to translate some translate it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation others and it shall be told of the Lord to the next generation <coughs> if we were to take it in a first sense we're calling the Lord's people a generation now that's significant. What's a generation? A generation of people who are contemporaries. But you would say, well, the Lord's people could never be contemporaries. They have been born into the church of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago, some 4,000 years ago, some maybe thousands of years in the future. You could say they'll never be contemporaries. Ah, but listen. When Christ offered himself up to the eternal spirit, all the Lord's people, all the Lord's people were in the elect. And those for whom Christ offered himself, as it were in the Lord's eyes, were his generation. Born again of the Holy Spirit in time, yes, but ordained before the foundation of the world. It's as if God sees us as contemporaries, as one generation. And isn't that the way we will be? When the new heaven and the new earth are formed, 
and the Lord's people live on it. will be one generation. No one died. No one died. No one succeeding the other. You could also take it in the other way, though, and say that we shall be telling about the Lord to the people in the generation to come. And that can be explained self-evidently to yourselves. That we want to tell of the Lord to the generations to come. That fits also in with the next phrase. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness to a people that shall be born. You see, Christ's work was for people who hadn't yet even been born. They hadn't even been conceived. You see, when Christ died for our sins, not only were we not born, not even our great-great-great-great-grandfather was born. And yet, the Lord, when he went to that cross, he was looking ahead. And he was thinking of all the people who would be saved by his work. People who weren't yet born. Ordained before the foundation of the world the Lamb was. And so were the people for whom he would die. Not yet born, but engraved on the palms of his hands. My friend, before you were ever in this world, before even the world itself was made, your name was written on God's hand. Never, never have you been loved the way God loves you. Never. Never will you cease to be loved by God. Your name engraved, though you are not yet born. And what will those who are not yet born, what will they be blessed with? How will they be brought to Jesus? Well, you find it in verse 31. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness to a people that shall be born. How is the world going to turn to Jesus? People from all over the world, high and low, in the generations to come, how will it be brought? Only when people go out and declare God's righteousness to the people. Declare God's righteousness. That's our message. God's justice. That's what we have to do. First of all, declare God's justice with respect to sinners. Let's tell those who have been born and begin to tell them very soon after their birth. Tell them of God's justice. That he's holy and they're sinners. And God will deal with them in perfect, exact justice. Tell them also about providence. That God will never do any wrong to them. That in life, all of life, he will deal with them in righteousness. 
tell them also about Christ and about Christ being the one who was just and yet the one who died for those who are unjust. Tell them that God has a way in which he can be righteous but forgive the unrighteous. Tell them about God's righteousness in the judgment to come. Declare God's righteousness. Who did you last declare God's righteousness to? When did anyone hear you last speaking of God's justice? God's faithfulness. That's the message that we are to bring to those who are born. Yes, generations to come will be a seed, a generation yet unborn, but to them will be declared the righteousness of God. And they shall come. They shall come. What a thought. You know, You've heard many sermons from many ministers down through the decades in this church. Some of you in many other churches. And sometimes you may feel disheartened because you're not seeing people convert. They hold on this promise. They shall come. They shall come. Mm. Receive. They'll all come. Some of them, and I'm sure this applies to yourselves, some of them will come having first opposed the gospel, but then melted by the love of God. Some of them will come out of fear of judgment and driven by the Spirit to receive. Others will come with fear. Others will come and they'll feel so unworthy. They'll feel that they are the least important Christian in the whole church. They'll feel that they, above all, are the chief of sinners. I will feel that unworthy, but they'll still come. They'll still come. Because irresistible is the grace that calls them. They will come. They cast their ways. Why? For the Lord hath done this. The Lord's done it all. He has done it. Because he suffered. He will receive the reward. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Christ, he travelled. And he travelled in his soul in particular. But he shall see of that travel. He shall see blessings. And everyone for whom he gave his soul to death, every one of them will come. The Lord's done it. It is finished. 
he has accomplished it. You can imagine the rejoicing of Christ. The Spirit of Christ wrote this psalm to me. Can you imagine the rejoicing that the angels have in heaven over one sinner that repents? There must be magnificent jubilation. There must be, well, I, I was reading one lovely commentary by a man called J.C. Nielsen. I wouldn't agree with everything he said. But he was talking about the first Christian who died and went to heaven, Abel. And he was saying, imagine when Abel entered heaven. Imagine the song that Abel singing. That the angels themselves would rejoice over Abel. And then he says, it's as if the angels would have to stop to hear the song that Abel sings. Because the angels have not been saved from sin, but Abel has. And they're straining to hear the notes of his song. It's so wonderful. Well, if the angels rejoice over one sinner, what will Christ do over the whole multitude of his people? brought to glory. He died for us. He's tonight in heaven waiting for us. And soon we will be there with him. Now my friends, he will rejoice when you reign. He will rejoice with exceeding joy when Christ embraces you all in glory along with that multitude from all the ends of the earth, high and low, when he has you all there, what rejoicing will fill his heart for the joy that was set before him. We're unworthy. Yes, we're unworthy. When we go into heaven, some of us will be weeping because we will feel, oh, we will feel that this was the one place we never thought we would enter into. But then we will see the King of Glory. We will see the gates open wide for us to go in. And we will know we belong there. And Christ himself, the King, says, Come unto my throne. Sit with me. Sit with me. This, you see, is what Christ is doing. And the whole of history is like a line fulfilling that vision. Gathering the people. It's all going on tonight. They shall come. Let us pray. Lord, oh God, we do thank. We thank you, Lord, for that love that was shed. And that blood was shed in love. And thou wilt gather your people in that same love. You would never leave your church on her own to gather the people. You gave her your spirit. And you said, I will be with you. You didn't say that grudgingly. 
No, Lord Jesus, you wanted to be there as the gospel is preached. You want to be in the heart as it is bowed to you. You want to be there when the first rays of grace sink into the darkened soul. You want to be there to embrace them all. And you are. And we thank you that you will bring all your people home together forever with the Lord. You have done. It is finished. Watch over us and forgive us for all your failure to understand your work and your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.